Good morning, Austin Oaks Church. Good to be with you guys today. I'm Lucas Jackson. I've got the best gig in the house here. I'm the youth pastor, so I love it. Absolutely. Um, hey, just want to give a shout out. Um, we've got lots of uh, college and young adults uh, for the TBRM camp this week. Could you guys stand, actually? Sorry to put you guys on the spot. But you guys could st- yeah, it's okay to stand. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, guys. If you, uh, on your way in off to the right, you saw some uh, trailers and a rock climbing wall and that kind of stuff. So we've got a camp this week, excited for our little ones. Um, Not only your little ones in our church and my little ones, but in our community as well. So thank you guys so much for coming and serving. Very grateful for you guys and your willingness to do that. And actually, this past week, we had a group of students um, that were at a camp called Camp Blessing out in Brenham, Texas, a couple hours east of us. And it's a camp designed for kids and teenagers of special needs of a variety of ages. And so they go out there and they literally put uh, the well-being, physical, mental and emotional well-being of that particular child in the hands of a teenager, which I think is phenomenal. So we had a group of students uh, serving this past week. And so grateful for those students who were doing that as well. I'm stoked to be here with you guys. If you could turn to Colossians chapter 3, we are in a series called Simply Jesus. And so Pastor Brandon addressed the first section of chapter 3 last week. If you were not here, feel free to go online and take a gander at that to catch up a little bit. And maybe some of you guys are discussing the passages in your small groups that are meeting throughout the summer. And so today we are going to be in Colossians 3, 12 through 15. And so if you would just turn there and put your thumb there, we'll get there in just a moment. I remember as a high school student who grew up in poverty in in accordance with U.S. standards, for sure. Um, and I always desired what I didn't have, like crazy. Um, always seeing what others had and often thinking and dreaming about having it. And so, um, and even what it would feel like once I possessed what I was looking at. I thought others' lives were awesome because of the life they had. And I attributed a lot of that because to the things that they had, the stuff they had. And I thought that their parents were that nice because of that sweet house they had or the car that they had. Or like when it came uh, the the wintertime and basketball turned around and like my buddies always got the legit shoes, not like last year's off the sale basketball shoes. I'm talking like the ones that everybody wanted, like Colby's and that kind of stuff. Everybody remembers that back in the day. And so, uh, or when, when all the swag that my friends had when it came to playing football or basketball, like I remember when Under Armour first came out. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And so I just remember like, man, I'd love to have that. I, I quickly found out in order to have the stuff you want, you have to have a job. Thank you. And in order to have a, and, and, and when you have a job, that allows you to work and to have money. Yes. And then you can buy stuff. I love it. You guys are doing great. So I was processing through like, I mean, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, man, what jobs did I have growing up? So I, I have a list here. They're quite, they actually say a lot about me, so please be gentle. Um, I started mowing yards. Um, I started doing construction work, concrete work, roofing, which is terrible to do, pulling wells. That was actually kind of fun, uh, pulling wells in oil fields. The problem is when the winter comes around, which we don't have here, and like you have to get a blowtorch out to dethaw everything. That's, that's a whole issue in and of itself. Um, I cleaned some neighbors' houses. I worked at a landscaping company. That's pretty legit. Um, I worked for a pest control company. I had no idea what I was doing there. Um, I washed dishes at a restaurant. It's actually a funny one. 
I was, my mom was like, hey, you're getting older. I mean, I was like in the sixth grade. And I, mean, I was like, okay, you know, like, she's, you know, your feet are big and, you know, and stuff gets expensive. And I now know, I'm like, oh gosh, like the food bill alone. I, I, you parents that have multiple kids, it's like, how do you afford the food to feed? It's crazy. Anyway, um, and I remember uh, just, you know, I mean, I'm working and getting some money, but this first, my very first job was washing dishes at a restaurant. I was just out of the sixth grade and they were totally paying me cash under the table. So that's kind of how that worked. Um, and so I did enough hours. It was $4 an hour, which I thought was legit. I thought that was a lot. Um, nowadays, I'd be like, four bucks, man. And so I remember working enough. It was like 200 bucks a week. So as a sixth grader, I was making like 800 bucks. You can do the math. I, I thought I was like living high. And the crazy thing is, everything I made, I spent. I didn't spend more than I had. But everything I had, I spent. So I started buying all that stuff that I thought would make me happy. And so I spent it. I thought it would help me be like the people I saw around me, which like externally is like, this is dumb. Like, really, Lucas, you really did that? And I'm like, yes, I did. And I thought it would help me um, become not so much externally like those people, but internally. You know, I'd wear the things that they wore. I tried so hard to be like others. I literally thought if I worked hard enough and made enough money, I could look and be just like others, not so much externally, but even more so internally. And so I quickly found myself working a lot. Not so much, uh, and, and it was fascinating to me how the mental capacity that was going into me and my thought process behind buying all this stuff. And you can outwardly technically reach this. I mean, technically you can get to a point where you look like somebody else, where you wear the same thing and, and you, uh, I remember when popped collars became a thing. And if you're younger, you like, know what I'm talking about. I, I kid you not, I started the pop collar at my high school. I really did. My wife will say, otherwise, do not believe her. I did. So I found out that it did not satisfy my soul, literally. And that's not how I was processing it then, but looking back, and, but I accomplished my goal of having the material things that I wanted, but it did not satisfy me. I thought it would help me feel like I was like them or even a part of their life to an extent. And it maybe would even, to an extent, take away just the difficulties that I had in my family dynamics. In many ways, I was trying to create a sense of identity with others because of the way their lives were and how their families were. I thought having what they had would help me think less about my family situations and the life I had. I was forcing myself to become somebody I was not. In truth, I was working towards becoming a person I wanted to be, and the way I was seeking it did not help, and it did not work. It was not the same. Is this not the same as when we were non-believers, actually? Giving effort and energy and passion and becoming someone we want to be in reality, we needed to let Christ create us into the person he wants us to be. It is God's role to make us the way we are and to guide us into becoming who he wants us to be. It seems like once we are saved and you're a part of a community and you're a part of a church that some of these desires don't really go away, even as adults. The desire to be like others in the church, even maybe to get to a point where you, for some that have been around for a long time, like, man, I'd really love to study the Bible in Greek or Hebrew, or the sense of, of reaching a spirituality and knowing enough information. And so 
You act like others in the church, not so much because you want to, but because you feel like you need to, or um, you buy the same things that others in the church have, but even though you like hate it, but you want to be like them, and so you buy it anyway. Or maybe you debate, and you debate, and you debate about other things that other people are talking about because they are, even though you don't really care, but you just, there's a sense of you want to be like them. Just because sin no longer rules our lives does not mean that there is no baggage and effects of our sins we bring into our pursuit of Christ and into the church in the way we connect with others. So I've got this term I want you to follow me with. It's a little unique, so just let me premise it with that. Usually when I say stuff like this, my wife's already like, oh gosh, help us all. But uh, hopefully you'll bear with us. It's this concept of a misfit. And it's a unique term, I get it, but let me explain here. It's like we're all misfits, trying to fit into a world that is ever-changing, brutal, and without compassion and love. A misfit is a person whose behavior or attitudes set them apart from others in an uncomfortable, conspicuous way. I love that terminology. That's what we are like. The only reason we are, most of us at least, that are gathered here today is because of our common unity with the gospel. Most likely, many of us would not hang outside this sense of community with other people in this room for whatever reason, because you live on a different part of town or your different phase of life, like you've got littles or your uh, grandparents, whatever reason, whatever reason it is, the one thing that unifies all of us is the sake of the gospel and that we're all followers of Christ, if you are a believer in the room. But externally, you all look different. You act different, have different passions and desires and some of you wear things differently, and some of you got lots of tats, and some of you are like, a tattoo? Like, is that allowed? Like, there's this verse in the Bible that says we're all unique, we're all different. So if externally, we look like a group of misfits. And so my thought process is this. Only Christ can take a group of, of misfits and create a family. How awesome is that? Only Christ can take a group of, of misfits and create a family. So let's see how God does this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. So I'm going to read this collectively together. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you so also must forgive. Verse 14. And above all, all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, in verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let's pray. God, thanks for the opportunity we have this morning to set aside our lives, literally, to worship you, to be a part of this church. God, eager and excited to see what you're going to do in our lives today as you convict us with your word and continue to build your church. So God, would you speak to us today and allow us, Lord, just to leave here today, strengthen our relationship with you, strengthen our relationship with each other and our families and our brothers and sisters in our church, and eager to see what you're going to do, God. We pray this in your name. Amen. Verse 12, put on these as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Interesting language there. You probably don't use that every day. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This aspect of put on is literally to clothe yourself, or you could even say to envelop in. Why? Because you have put on the new self. 
Last week, we looked at the things we needed to put to death. And you can look in Colossians 3, and you can see all the sinful nature in, in verse 5, where he says, put to death, therefore. And he talks about all these sinful things and aspects of, of the things that we pursue in our lives. And so we talked about that last week. And so, so we, we talked about put to death those things, but today we're going to talk about what to put on and what to live out and how God desires for us to live our lives out. In order for us to live out these values, we need to know our identity. If, if you've put to death your sinful nature, as in you've become a follower of Christ, so you put that to death, therefore then now how are you going to live? That's what I want to talk about a little bit today. In order for us to live these values out, though, we need to know our identity and our relationship with Christ. So I want to take a look at just what does it mean to be adopted into the family of God? Because he uses this awesome language of chosen, or you could use the word terminology of elect. And there's a lot of baggage that comes out of terminology. So I'm hoping to clear some of that up today. But, but the wrath of God is no longer coming for you if you are a believer in Christ. How legit is that? The wrath of God is satisfied and no longer coming for you if you are a follower of Christ. When you say yes to Jesus, he satisfies the wrath of God on your behalf. You are in the family of God and no longer trying to bring life. Why? Because you now have life in Jesus himself. Before we were children of the world and we were living life our way, the way described earlier in Colossians 3 and verse 5 and, and continuing, we are a slave to sin. These old things won't lead to life. Only Christ leads to life. Church, it is simply Jesus. Christ is the one who saves us, and he is the one whose identity we now have. 1 Peter 2, 9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So adoption actually is something that kind of hits a little bit home. My wife and I are in a process of, of adopting, and we're, I don't know, like four or five months down the road. And, and so there's a lot of correlations here, I think, between uh, pursuing an adoption of a child and or, ki or multiple kit, maybe like seven or ten my wife and I are working those details out. You can ask me later uh, who's winning on that one. Anyway, but we're in this adoption process, and there's a ton of correlations, I thought, in terms of, of our being adopted into God's family and, and what it looks like for us and being able to adopt kids. And so, um, so one thing I thought of is just, you know, we're having conversations with our kids about it. I mean, our daughter's four, and our son is like two. And it normally, you know, goes something like, hey, you know, are you on daddy's side? How many more kids you want? Let's tell mommy we need seven more. That's totally, total manipulation there. Um, probably sinful even, sorry. Uh, but uh, so, you know, we're having conversations with our kids. You know, would you like a boy or a girl? And, and I'm thinking, I don't want to buy a bigger house. So how many bunk beds am I going to have to build? And am I going to have to convert the garage into living space? You know, all of those fun things to talk about. But we're having conversations about it with our kids so they're aware. And so that way when, you know, three kids show up one day or maybe seven, my, you know, the kids kind of know like, oh, they kind of know what's going on. Um, and there's a whole lot of paperwork. Like there's a, there's a few pages of paperwork to fill out, um, to say the least. Uh, there's some training online. You've you got to have a fire inspection. Uh, you have to have a health inspection. You have to have background checks and 
All of these things, fun fact, found out if, if you stay at our house for more than three days, you have to have a background check. And I'm thinking like family vacation where there's 35 of us in one house. I'm like, that's a lot of background checks. So we're figuring it out. We're not there yet. This is kind of car before the horse stuff. But anyway, we're in this process. And so what does it mean? What are the correlations to be adopted in, into the family of God? So here's a few things I think about. What does it mean to be adopted into God's family? Well, according to verse 12, God is the one who chose you to be in the family. And for my wife and I, and if you've ever been a part of the adoption process, or maybe even you've been adopted, um, the child has no idea what my wife and I are doing. The child isn't trying to be a better person or trying to figure things out. If it's, let's just say it's a newborn, the child has no idea. The child does nothing to receive our love or for us to go through three days of training and to fill out a thousand sheets of paperwork and all the meetings. The child has no idea. The child's role in that is literally nothing. And I think it's the same for us when we become followers of Christ. God chooses us. We don't choose him. Yes, there's an aspect where we say yes to God and the free will aspect, but nonetheless, God seeks you. You did not wake up one day and just knew that there was a God, and therefore, Jesus is the answer, therefore, you're a follower of Jesus now. Like, it's the working of God within our very souls that allowed that to take place, and it's all the working of God. How do I know? Because verse 12 tells us he chose you. So God is the one who chooses. You are holy. You are set apart by God for the work of God. When, when Lord willing, when we receive a child or multiple child, kids, um, most likely they're going to indwell all things the Jackson household. So a couple things that are fun about the Jackson household, um, we like to hunt. I say we, I say me because my kids are too young, you know, but I'm counting down the weeks when my daughter can take hunter safety when she's nine and we can go out and get some free deer jerky. It's going to be a glorious day. I'm excited. So Lord willing, they're going to embrace some hunting and we're, we're going to fish and they're going to have some, some chores that they're going to have to do. Paige has been feeding the cat. For, I mean, I'm kind of hoping the cat runs away, but he hasn't yet. But she's been feeding the cat for like four years. I mean, since she was like a year and a half old, she goes out and she puts the food and she's now strong enough to open the bucket so I don't have to do it anymore. You know, and so she's, so whoever these kids are, they're going to have chores. They're, they're going to indwell all things Jackson's. They're going to go on family vacations. They're going to be in the children's ministry. You're going to be able to rub shoulders with them. You may even... You know, be kissing them up here when they get, uh, uh, when Don Reed comes up and we dedicate them and all those things. Like, you are going to be a part of this process, but they're going to become, for good or bad, like the Jackson family. But when it comes to our relationship with God, you, you are set apart, so you are chosen, you've been adopted, you're in the family of God for the work of God. So the Lord has stuff for you to do. You become like his son and you live out the attributes of what it means to follow Christ. Just like a child will literally live out the attributes of their parents. Fascinating. And the last one is really legit. Your beloved, which is a kind of, we don't use that every day, but you're loved like crazy. You're loved like crazy. You're loved by God and will be a whole lot more love coming down the road when it comes to your relationship with God. And so, so when a child, Lord willing, comes into our home, they're going to get a whole lot of loves. That kid will be slung 15 feet in the air and I will catch them, Okay. Been doing it with both kids, never dropped them, all right? They are going to experience some love. They are going to have grandparents and some of you random people they don't even know by name be hugging them, and they're going to be like, ah, you know, but it's going to be awesome because of our love, your love for this child. That is what it means to be a part of a church family and even a part of your relationship with God.
Wow. You are chosen by God. You are holy and set apart. He's got some plans for you. And you are loved by God. Ephesians 1.4, even as He chose us in Him, listen to this, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. By living out the gospel, we are living our true purpose in life. And if denying the truth of the gospel, you are not living out the purpose of the calling you have received from God. 2 Timothy 1, 8-9 says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. This aspect where God chooses us, crushes our pride, and exalts God for who he is and what he does. It removes us from driving and being the one who's control of our lives and allows Jesus literally to be the one who takes the wheel. Paul is laying out some personal attributes here in verse 12 um, that we are to live out now that we have this new life, this new relationship with Christ, not only for the sake of you specifically or your family, but also for the sake of the church community that you're a part of and in the harmony and the unity of the church. Um, there's so much that I could say about these attributes and qualities in verse 12. Um, but, but let me just say this. Each of these virtues help us relate to one another. They're aspects of living out our faith that help us to relate with each other. I am fascinated that God would not, uh, that God would need to uh, lay out the simplicity of the gospel in such a way that we go back to what he taught us from the moment from we are days old when we enter this world. The moment we breathe life, Sin and the desire for us to live life our way creeps in and causes us to want to fight God's way. But the moment we were born or the moment that you've had a child, there's a sense of, of you teach them love and you teach them compassion. And as they grow and they develop, you want them to understand what it means to love others. When we fight against God's way, we can easily leave a trail of bodies and circumstances and issues in the wake of our lives Church, how much we need Christ. Verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We are, at this church, we're simply about Jesus, and the gospel is a big deal, and we talk about forgiveness because without the forgiveness of Christ, then you wouldn't be in the family, and I wouldn't be in the family, so it's kind of a big deal and that we talk about this here. And so, this is how I envision this passage. I envision a mom and dad with their kids at like a play date kind of thing. Maybe they're at the splash pad, they're at the park, and they see their son or daughter like kick another kid. Your kid's never done that. Like it, your kid would never do that. But, but let's say my kid kicked another kid. And so you see, and if you're like watching this scene take place, this is what happens most of the time. Mom and dad or dad, whoever's there, will grab the child. They walk over like this face, this face off between one kid and the other. And they're like this tall. And what, what dad, what's dad do? He gets down, gets eye level, right? He looks at their son or daughter in the eye and says, what do you have to say? Right? Right? And the child, as they roll their eyes at you, and they're like this, and I am sorry. And that's the image I have here where, where God literally has to remind us 
of the basics of what it means to be human and to love other people. And a part of that is forgiveness. We teach that to our kids the moment they're, they're days and weeks old and how easily it is for us as grown men and women to forget. Bearing with one another, this is a fascinating phrase. It's actually pretty legit. It talks about to be gracious with each other. To be gracious with each other. Put up with each other. It's like, oh, I don't know if this really in the Bible. Do we have to do that? Yeah, we got to put up with each other. We're a bunch of misfits trying to pursue Christ together. We're going to rub shoulders and bump heads and things are going to go crazy sometimes. To endure, to hold out in spite of persecution, threats, injuries, indifference, or complaints, and not retaliating. That's what it means to be a person, part of a church that bears with each other. By li- and how do we do this? By living out the attributes of verse 12. Putting to death the sinful aspects of our lives and living out the aspects of verse 12. Forgive in the same way Christ has forgiven you. And Ephesians 4.32 lays this out beautifully. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And there's this phrase here, if you have a complaint against another. So I'm glad that Jesus addresses this here. This is referring to when somebody is at fault because of sin, error, or debt. Another way, it is speaking to the offended party. Have you ever been offended by somebody in the church? I was, was going to leave the awkwardness out there. I'm, I'm, I'm still okay. I'm hoping you're okay. Hopefully it's not the person right next to you, but it may be. So we offend each other. If somebody has a complaint, the offended person, okay, get this, should take action towards the one who made or may not have even known that they had done something wrong. Take action. And that doesn't mean like retaliate, go crazy, post on Facebook, you know, uh, let's not go crazy on social media and bashing that person. Okay, Matthew 18 lays out what it means to confront a brother, sister in Christ. You can read that passage. Fascinating. Anyone can hold grudges. But a mark of a follower of Christ is to be somebody who forgives. And I don't really think that means to forgive and to forget. I don't know if that's possible. But through the love of Christ and the Spirit of God inside of us, He gives us the desire and the ability to forgive. But maybe we should even address what does it mean to forgive somebody? That's a term we say a lot. What does it mean to forgive? Give graciously. Cancel. Pardon, or better put, free forgiveness. Not forgiveness that has an agenda attached to it or a deadline attached to it. How did Christ do this? This is fascinating to me. You have to pay attention to catch this. Christ graciously initiated forgiveness of your sins before you ever confessed them. Before the foundation of the world, Christ's pursuit of you has been a reality. You did nothing. Fascinating to me. What a model we have by Christ. This example that is set for us to strive towards. A model that is impossible without the Spirit of God living within us and working inside of each believer. And then we come to verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on, again, is to clothe yourself. Um, and what do you, in, you know, clothe yourself with? We've taken away the old sinful nature that we, that we talked about last week, and we're putting on these attributes as we pursue Christ that verse 12 refers to. 
The idea here is we are seeking mutual love, which allows a group of people to be perfected, which is really needed when a group of misfits come together to pursue Christ. How do I, how do I describe, we talk about love a lot, and it's one of those, I don't know if it's lost, I don't know if it's, it's just something we throw around a lot. So I was trying to figure out what, what, is, what does the love of Christ mean, or how do we how do we live out above all this put on love where it's like, it's like the capstone. It's like much more, because without love, everything, everything up to this point is just legalism. And so what does it mean? And so, so I was flushing this out. And so, so to continue with the adoption analogy, so we had three days of training a couple weeks ago. And, and so it's like all day Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So we're in this training and, and you know, they give you like a 17-inch binder of all this information. And I'm really grateful that the test is easy. I was like, oh, my word. Um, and so, you know, we go through this training, and, I, and I, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a counselor. I'm, I'm just a youth pastor. So don't, so don't, like, quote me on some of this stuff. But this is some of the aspects of, of what they taught us. And that was fascinating to me. And I've never just, for whatever reason, thought about it a lot. But, but we talked about trauma, which is fitting. Not every child who is given up for adoption has experienced trauma. Um, and so not every child is abused and all of those things. That stuff happens, yes. But, but when it comes to this training we received, they talk about how you may have a 10-year-old child who is the age of 10 years old, which makes sense, right? But they may look like they're only seven years old because they haven't, their body hasn't developed due to the trauma. This is a biological fact, by the way. Not only that, you may have a 10-year-old child who may have experienced some trauma, that not only looks like they're seven, but they may have the emotional capacity of like a four-year-old. And no, this has nothing to do with the child. This was done to them. It's, um, this was some trauma that they experienced. And so we're going through all this, and we're in a room with other people, and I'm, you know, we're like both crying. I'm like, you know, just your mind imagines, you know, things that happen. And all, it's, just like, it's just a lot to take in. So, so we're sitting there, and, and the presenter keeps going through the material, and it hits me. I go, everything they've just taught us is how to love a child, like how to embrace a child, how to love a child, make sure they feel safe and loved and cared for and embrace the child. And it was even funny, too, because they're like things like, don't put a child, a newborn, on their stomach. You have to put them on their back. If you didn't know that, that's like legit advice. You need to know that if you're going to be a parent next week. You put them on their back, not on their stomach, right? But also things like, you should put your child in a car seat. And I was like, okay, I can do that. I mean, we've been doing that, so that one's easy, Right? But so they, they go through all of these practical things of what it means to parent, which are great, um, because some of the folks in there have never been parents before. But then they get through all this material, and I, I just can't help but think, like, this biological issue, and what I mean when I say that is a child that has experienced trauma, their brain has not developed in accordance to where it should be with their age because of the trauma. And so the presenter's going, and they're presenting this stuff, and they're talking about this stuff, and it hits me, I go... The love of God can literally fix, biologically fix a brain of a child. And I'm like, oh my word. Because they're talking about, you love a child, you embrace a child. I'm like, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go fishing. We're going to have a great time. We're going to go shoot some animals. Like, we're going to have a good old time. Like, we're going to get lots of love, you know? They're, when I come home and I hear daddy, it's like, we're slinging them things in the air. Like, we're having a good old time, all right? Uh, just side note. Now, if you live in Texas and you have a little child, don't start camping in a tent on a weekly basis. Because I did that, and if you don't know, it's July right now. 
So we tried last week, and my daughter went inside, and she's like drenched in sweat. And my wife's like, no, get in here. It's too hot. And I'm like, praise God, because it was, it was hot. We're sweating. So all these things, I'm gonna, we're going to love the child. But it was fascinating to me to literally to hear the fact that you loving a child will literally help a brain of a child develop to where it's supposed to be. It will literally be fixed biologically because of the love that you have for that child. You cannot tell me this is, this is just something how life just somehow works. Like this is like the redemptive plan of God, how you can love a child and their brain can develop how it's supposed to be. That is fascinating to me. So it hits me. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm a fixer. So I'm like, we can fix that. I can love a child. We can do that. We can love a child so much, no matter what traumatic experience that they've had, that we can help that brain heal itself. Now, there's obviously baggage and those kind of things that come with that. But I'm fascinated by how God has designed your love, grandma and grandpas, as you embrace your grandchild. Dads, when you, when you take your, gra- your daughter to the park, you're not just going to the park. When you take your son fishing or, or when you take him to the mall and you buy that dress, like that, ain't, that is not simplistic things that have no significance. You are loving a child to the extent that they need and they are cared for in such a way that nobody else can do. That's why you're there. So don't ever think, parents, that your simple embrace of your child when you come home from work is meaningless. Because it's actually biologically needed for the health of your child or your teenager, and even for you as adults, right? Fascinating to me. I think that's what, what it means. What if, church, what if God's design for us to love others really is simply just that? And what if it does have that kind of effect on those in your family and household and even the neighbor's son that you take fishing or the neighbor's daughter that comes over or, or the pack of 15 boys that come over and you're like, oh, they're with the food bill and it's only the third of the month, right? And it's interesting because I think in 1 Corinthians 13, which is quoted a lot at weddings, which is fitting because the context actually is conflict. 1 Corinthians 13 uh, one through three says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have no love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Strong language there. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then, Later in verse 13, it says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is what allows unity in the church to be a reality instead of just a phrase on a wall. As a dad, we watch a lot of princess movies. So, uh, I don't know, my daughter's got like six different princess outfits, depending upon the movie we watch. You've gone through this, I know. Back in the day, you had the stack of DVDs that looked like bricks, right? And so uh, we watch a lot of Disney movies, princess movies. And it's actually, I finally realized there's a blessing to an HOA, because if my daughter had it her way, we would have painted the house pink by now. And if you were my neighbor, you'd be like, we're moving because of the psycho next door or 
crazy dude is like painting his house pink, so I'm kind of grateful for HOAs a little bit. Um, and so, but when we, when we watch Disney movies at our house, you're not allowed to sit most of it because in Disney movies, there's a lot of what? Singing and dancing, right? So uh, Paisley recently got one of the Mermaid Tales, you know, because we watched that Disney movie. And so anyway, and so at our house, we watch a lot of these things and, and uh, you're not allowed. You're not allowed. It's like you are not allowed to sit when there's singing taking place. So I'm sitting there, you know, and daddy, 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 get up. It's, it's a singing part. And, and so I've embraced all bit of the dancing skills I have, which is not very much, in the living room at our house, which has been fun. And there's this aspect where I'm fascinated by our daughter because, because we watch a lot of Disney movies. We, she dresses up. She dances around. And I can't help but think of like, wow, like, like how critical important is it for the simplistic things of life for us as dads, especially and moms and grandparents, to influence our kids' lives because of how significant it is in their lives. And I think of one particular uh, movie uh, is Cinderella. We started to watch this one a lot. My, she Paisley's got a Cinderella dress like this. And so if, how many of you have seen the Disney movie Cinderella? All right, some of you are like, do I have to confess that? How many of you have seen it dozens of times? Okay, all right, cool. I don't feel too oddball out here. So uh, great story. Um, newer one came out a few years ago or whatever, but, uh, you know, fun. It's interesting. Would you guys agree with me and describe Cinderella as a loving person? She's pretty loving, right? Let me, let me ask again. Would you describe her as loving? Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Now, let me show you her two stepsisters, which I actually had to look up their names because I'm like, nobody cares about, everybody dislikes the stepsisters. And I had to look up the names. Actually, I already forgot because this is how insignificant they are. Um, but if, would you describe her two sisters as loving? No, right? Not at all. Okay. So for simplicity's sake, don't be the two evil sisters and be more like Cinderella Church. All right. Show some love. All right. All right. I mean, it, am, I, am I explaining this on a level that we can all agree on? Right. Okay. Anyway. Oh, that's so funny. Um, to try to practice the virtues in verse 12, without love is legalism. For you to express humility, compassion, heartfelt, tender care for your own kids without love, is legalism. Love is what is expressed upon others to push back the darkness and the sin that destroys unity. Church, I need to be very clear here. This is not a morality issue. This has nothing to do with you being a better person. It is about sinners coming to meet Jesus who are changed because of the working of Christ in their lives. How does a sinner meet Jesus? Because of a group of misfits just like this, who decide to wake up and to pursue Christ on a daily basis, despite all the difficulties and the tension at work and the tension with relationships at home or, or the lack thereof or whatever it is, despite life itself. You desire to pursue Christ. And as a child, your love towards other kids, and as a middle schooler and a high schooler, what you do in your schools are significant and they matter like crazy. And as adults, our workforce, all the things that God has you involved in, they are important because you are a misfit pursuing Christ. 
Verse 15. Last verse here, and then I'll say a few things when we'll be done. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The war that, is, that was waging between you as a non-believer and God is now over. And the treaty that paid that price was the blood of Christ. Do not think for a moment that salvation costs nothing. Salvation costs you and I nothing, but it costs God greatly. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because of this, we are at rest and we are secure. The peace can only come to you by Christ himself. There is no other way to bring lasting peace to the very soul of a person without faith in Jesus Christ. And then it talks about to have Christ rule in your hearts. It literally means for Christ to be the umpire, to be the deciding factor, to be, to be the one that is judged and decides and is in control of the decisions and the things that you pursue. When we have the peace of Christ in our hearts, you will live in harmony with others. I'm a numbers guy. Um, I'll throw this one at you just because I love saying it with parents when I get an opportunity. You have 936 weeks from the moment your son or daughter is born until they graduate and go off to college. And that's not for you to like go crazy and cheer to kick them out the door, but just to take advantage of the time you have. So I thought I'd do some math. 3,744 weeks is what the average weeks a person gets in their lifetime. The average person lives to be 72. Some of you are much closer to that than others, and that's fine. Some of you are like, 72? I can't even imagine being 21. And some of you are like, I can't wait till 72 comes. It's interesting, the average for a man is 72, and the average for a woman is 75, so I can't help but kind of think like, is God trying to get men out of the way here a little bit? I don't know, there may be something there. Probably not, but, but clearly God sees a need to give us a limited amount of time for us to take advantage of that which he desires for us to do. And so this is the time that you get to live a life worthy of the calling you have received by God. So let me, I want to dream out loud with you here for a moment, and then I'll pray for us. What if, church, what if your walk with Christ, yes, you, I'm referring to you just to clarify, the misfit that you are, what if seeking Christ personally, what if, what if you led your family to seek Christ? What if you led yourself to seek Christ? Dads, what if you led your family well to seek Christ? Moms, what if you led your family well to seek Christ? What if? And what if we seek Christ together as a church? What if we are simply about Jesus? What if we stopped complicating our lives? What if we stopped and lived out our identity as followers of Christ, as adopted sons and daughters into the family of God? What if? What if you take your very last breath on this earth and you drag a lost soul into heaven with you? What if, church, what if 
God took a group of misfits and turned us into a family that was simply about Jesus. What would this church look like if we saw others as adopted sons or potential adopted sons because they're not in the family yet and you want to get them into the family? What would Austin look like if the church expressed love and compassion for those who are far from God no matter what they look like? No matter if it's a misfit that you would normally hang out with or somebody that you would cross the street to ignore? What if, church, what if, what if we didn't hide our kids' eyes so quickly so they wouldn't see somebody on a street that you wouldn't want your son or daughter to associate with? What if? What if we were just a church that is simply about Jesus? And what if you started today with this church on the journey with us to being simply about Jesus. What if? I can't help but think if the love of a human being can biologically heal a traumatic brain of a child, I can't help but think what God could do if believers in Christ were simply about Jesus. Only Christ can take misfits and create a family. So I pray you'll be a part of this family. Let's pray. God, thanks for our time. Thanks for being awesome. Uh, believers in the room, be encouraged. Be encouraged, saints. You're here, you're alive, you're breathing. That means God's got work for you to do, so get after it. Be encouraged. There's purpose to this life because of Jesus Christ. If you're in the room and your very soul is about to jump out of your body and your heart's beating because God's calling you to him, I want you to know that you should say yes to Jesus. No strings attached. If God's calling you to be in the family, if God is right now saying, I want you to be a son in my family. If God is saying, I want you to be a daughter in my family. I pray you respond and say yes to Jesus for the first time. God, I can't help but think, what if we as a church were simply about Jesus? What if every individual, every family that is represented would, what would it look like if our homes were simply about Jesus? What would our church look like if we were simply about Jesus? God, help us to be simply about your son, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.